I've titled the sermon, Ignorance is Not Bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. You know, we say that ignorance is bliss, but here in Ezekiel chapter 30, we realize how ignorance is not bliss. The reason why I thought of this is in verses 8, 19, 25, and 26, the Lord gives a refrain, then they will know that I am the Lord. Why does God need to tell them that he is the Lord? Because they don't know that he is the Lord. Remember from Ezekiel chapter 29, Pharaoh, that crocodile in the Nile, thinks that he made the Nile. He clearly thinks that he is the God of Egypt and not the Lord. Ignorance is not bliss. The Lord acts against Egypt in the face of their ignorance. They do not recognize the Lord. And so the Lord will act against them in a way that causes their recognition. And our headings for this chapter match the impending doom that Egypt faces in this chapter. No friends, no wealth, no legacy, and no strength. They'll have no friends, that's verses 1 to 9. No wealth, 10 to 12. No legacy, verses 13 to 19. And no strength, verses 20 to 26. So first, no friends. This is verses 1 to 9. Egypt will have no friends. The lament is for Egypt, but if you notice in verse 3, Egypt's downfall is a time of doom for the nations. Egypt will face the sword, but so too, verse 4, will Cush, that is Ethiopia, to Egypt south. The slain will fall in Egypt, but also, verse 5, Put and Lud and all Arabia and Libya. Indeed, all the people of the land that is in league shall fall with them by the sword. Now, who, who are the people of the land that is in league? I think that this cryptic phrase could actually refer to people of the land, that is, God's people, Jews, who have decided that their best hope for the future is to go be mercenaries in Egypt. I'm not certain about that, but they're people of the land in league with the Egyptians. Anyway, they'll fall by the sword too. Egypt will have no friends. And Egypt will have no friends, not because Egypt has friends, And they abandoned Egypt. Egypt has no friends. Egypt will have no friends because Egypt's friends stick with Egypt only to be destroyed alongside her. Verse 6, those who support Egypt shall fall. Verse 7, they shall be desolated in the midst of desolated countries. Verse 8, all her helpers 
are broken. There will be a great alliance for destruction. Sepoys, infantrymen serving uh, the British, began a mutiny against the British East India Company on May 10th, 1857. The Mughal Empire, the Oud State, the Jagdishpur Estate, the forces of Rani Lakshmiba of Jhansi and of Nana Sahib Peshawar II, Gwalior and Jodhpur factions, the princely state of Banda, and a cast of other Rajas, Nawabs, Zamindars, Takurs, Chaudhrays, Talakdars, Sardars, and chieftains sided with them in the revolt against the British East India Company and their allies. That was May 10th, 1857. By June 20th, 1858, just over one year later, the British captured the city of Gwalior, securing the United Kingdom's victory. To do so, the British faced hefty losses, over 6,000 military and civilian deaths. But the estimated death of Indians is far greater, 800,000 or more. Even though the sepoys had a large collection of allies, they were defeated. So too with Egypt. Her friends will stick with her, but she will have no friends because they will be destroyed alongside her. Well, what about you? If you set yourself against the Lord, you will be defeated. If you think you can hold your own against the God of the universe because you have many friends, cool, powerful, beautiful friends, then you need to know that if they're standing against the Lord, they will be defeated too. You will have no friends. And if on your last day, you're still refusing to trust in Christ, then you will find yourself in hell, which is truly a friendless place. So turn to Christ and be a friend of God. Egypt had no friends, but that is not the case for you. So no friends. Second, no wealth. That's verses 10 to 12. The Lord God is very clear, verse 10. I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt. And God makes clear how he'll do it too. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, verse 11, and his allies will destroy the land. The Lord will get involved as well, drying up the Nile, verse 12. The, the river that Pharaoh boasted in, in the previous chapter, the river that nurtures a fertile land and produces wheat and barley, flax for making rope, 
and linen and papyrus for making paper mats and even boats. Did you know this? They, they made, they used papyrus to make boats. I, I was so astonished by this that I actually read about a uh, Norwegian who sailed, I think, thousands of miles across the ocean in a papyrus boat. But, verse 10, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt. Egypt will go bankrupt. Now, bankruptcy can come often. For Donald Eugene Lytle, known as Johnny Paycheck, it came regularly. He filed for bankruptcy in 1976 and in 1982 and again in 1990. Bankruptcy can come quickly. Lehman Brothers had 14 straight profitable years, including one of four point two billion dollars in 2007 only to have a loss of 2.8 billion in the second quarter of 2008 and filing for bankruptcy that year bankruptcy can come often quickly and bankruptcy can go local with over 180 bankruptcies per 100,000 people Arkansas ranked ninth in personal bankruptcy filing rates according to 2021 data compiled by Statista. Now, not every bankruptcy ends in despair. Tom Petty used his 1979 bankruptcy to help him in his negotiations with MCA Records. Due to Willie Nelson's misunderstanding with the IRS to the tune of $16 million, Willie had to file bankruptcy in 1990. But his bankruptcy gave him a burst of creativity in part to pay the IRS back. I mean, how else could we have the 1992 Willie Nelson album, The IRS Tapes, Who Will Buy My Memories, without his (laughs) bankruptcy? Now, bankruptcy need not be financial. Bankruptcy can be moral. Arkansas achieves only the top 10 for bankruptcies, but we get to the top five for divorces. Now, not every bankruptcy is your fault, and some divorces are biblically justified, but bankruptcy and divorce are not two categories in which I'd hope the natural state would excel. More pressingly, bankruptcy can be spiritual. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Some of us must confess that we have been laying up treasures on earth and not treasures in heaven. And that is a problem.
Because as Jesus continues in the very next verse in Matthew chapter 6, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We lay up treasure here on earth because our hearts are on earth and not focused towards heaven. And let's be honest, it's deeply unwise. If you lay up for yourself treasure on earth, you will either lose it, moth and rust will destroy it, thieves will break in and steal, or you will leave that treasure behind for someone else. Your great house, fancy car, favorite jacket, gorgeous handbag, whatever it is, will not last long. But even if you can keep and maintain that possession with love, affection, and tender care, even if you can keep it from decaying and you can protect it from anybody who would try to take it from you, you will not be able to keep and maintain your most treasured possession, yourself. You will either bury me or I will bury you. And then what will happen to our stuff? Some measure of our stuff, I'm thinking like 1%, but this may be overly generous. Some, some very small percent of our stuff will actually go to people that we know and care about. The rest will be discarded. And if your heart is not, so if you, if you think that you can trust in building up treasure on earth, then the words of Jesus should dissuade you from thinking that you have any hope of security in what will one day be in a landfill. But there's a deeper problem here because if you're focused on building up your treasures on earth, then you reveal where your heart is. And if your heart is not in heaven in the here and now, your, you will not be in heaven in the future. And that's too bad because heaven is a world of fabulous wealth. Do you think about this? I, I don't tend to think about this. I think of heaven as a world of love. Maybe heaven is a world of light. But, but heaven is a place, the, the New Jerusalem has 12 gates and each gate is a humongous single pearl that you get to walk through. The streets are paved with gold. The streets are paved with gold. Heaven is a place of fabulous wealth. By contrast, hell, in the words of Jesus himself, is the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. No wealth in hell. So choose true riches. Choose the wealth offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
your friends are dead, your wealth is gone, but you think to yourself, I'll have a legacy. What I've done will leave, uh, I'll have artifacts that I can, can leave on for those after me. Nope, no friends, no wealth, no legacy. Verses 13 to 19. Look at verse 13. I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images in Memphis. There shall no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt. So there, there won't be, you won't have a dynasty that continues after you. You know, trick, trick question here, little quiz. Who's, who, what, what's the name of the Pharaoh of Egypt? There is no Pharaoh of Egypt, right? So no legacy there. And then your idols and images will be no more. Verses 13 to 18 offer a geographic tour of the destruction. Unlike Ezekiel 29, where there was a kind of geographic order, uh, here I think it's, it's more haphazard. All of these cities are just the destruction of these cities demonstrate powerfully that Egypt's glory will fade. Memphis, Pathros, Zoan, Thebes, Pelusium, On, Pibasheth, Tehaphanes. Egypt's proud boasting will come to an end. And why? Well, remember, ignorance is not bliss. Hence, verse 19. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt. Why? Then they will know that I am the Lord. They sure don't seem to know that I'm the Lord, but they'll know after I visit them with destruction. In January 1818, the Examiner of London published Percy Bysshe Shelley's poem, Ozymandias. Ozymandias was the Greek name for Pharaoh Ramesses II. The fragment uh, of Ozymandias this little part of a statue of him, is now in the British Museum. It was taken from what was called the Temple of a Million Years. Here's the poem. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand. Sands stretch far away. There was such pompous boasting, and now there is just sand. The temple of a million years the temple of a million years 
became a curiosity in the sand well before a million years had passed. Such boasting, yet now such decay. Even still, all these Egyptian pharaohs and Babylonian kings, they enter and exit the stage of the Bible, and they are part of our story. They are part of redemption. Uh, they, they play a role in God's activity in the world. Even when they have no legacy, they serve a purpose. Well, you want a legacy. I want a legacy. We want to be remembered for something good, right? We want to be remembered for something good after we die, right? But we probably won't be remembered. Can you name your parents? Can you name your grandparents? Can you name all of your great-grandparents? If you cannot, if you cannot name all of your great-grandparents, what confidence do you have that your descendants will even be able to name you? Not, not, not just, oh, you know, great-grandpa Jay, he was so charming, or something like that. Like, you know, even name me. The, the expectation that I should have is that I will be nameless. Even if we're really famous now, I mean, if you're really famous now, and none of us is, unless you're a sports person and I don't know sports, then that, it's possible that you could be famous for sports and I just wouldn't know it. Um, even if you're really famous now, it doesn't mean that you'll be famous 100 years from now. doesn't mean that you'll have a legacy 100 years from now. Elon Musk has Tesla, but William C. Durant, Charles Stuart Mott, and Frederick L. Smith founded General Motors. Heard of them? Taylor Swift achieved the entire top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. She was the first artist to do so. But what about Jenny Lind, the 19th century Swedish singer who gave 93 concerts in America organized by P.T. Barnum. Do not dream of a legacy here on earth. Look forward to heaven. The great goal is not to be remembered, but to know, even as we're fully known. My great hope in life is not that a hundred years from now, somebody will have heard my name. My great joy in life, my great hope, is that right now, the Lord Jesus knows me. My, my goal is not to be remembered. My joy is to be known. So no friends, no wealth, no legacy, and finally, Verses 20 to 26, no strength. You're alone, destitute, disinherited, but perhaps you think, I've got strength. I can achieve, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. 
Absolutely not. The Lord has already broken one arm, verse 21, and that arm is not healed. This verse perhaps refers to an attempt by Pharaoh Hophra to liberate Jerusalem in 588 BC, only to flee from the scene. But it'll get worse. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong arm and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand. Bereft of strength, without a weapon, Egypt faces Babylon, verse 24, who has the sword of the Lord in his hand. God will strengthen the Babylonians and weaken the Egyptians. I've never broken an arm, but I have broken a leg. And I can tell you, even with modern medicine, breaking a bone is a horrible experience. I do not recommend it. But I can only imagine what it would be like. Actually, I I don't want to even try to imagine what it would be like thousands of years ago to break a bone and then for it not to heal. You are completely bereft of the use of an arm. And then to be told your other arm will be broken too. It's just horrifying. Well, if you feel like your life is one big broken arm, if you feel like you have no strength, then turn to Christ. If you are broken down, then look to Jesus. He is the only one who can bind you up. So no friends, no wealth, no legacy, no strength. Remember, what's the point of this judgment? The point of the judgment is that they will know that God is the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. That is the refrain in verses 8, 19, 25, and 26. So if you are facing real hardship, if you are facing real hardship, no friends, no wealth, no legacy, no strength, then remember who the Lord is and cry out to him. He will be your friend. He will supply what you need, the legacy that you have is not on this earth, but in the world to come. And he will give you strength for every good endeavor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the sorrows of this life would point us to the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray.
Amen.